0: The following is a message of First Baptist Richardson. For more information, please visit fbcr.org. Well, great job, choir. Let's give these guys a big hand for this one. Great job. And uh, Andy, I have to tell you, I'm impressed. You not only sing good, you play that big box over there pretty good, man. And I got to watching you and realized it's in the socks. All right. My goodness. I saw those at Walmart yesterday and decided not to buy them for a dollar. So <laughs> glad you got them, man. But a uh, hey, great job. Great thing. And, and uh, Sandy and I are delighted to be back with you again. And uh, we're honored that you would ask us to come back and be a part of this. And we've kind of decided to go ahead and join here. And uh, we want to do it this week. Uh, Because I want to attend the business meeting this week. I've always wanted to come to one. And uh, so you need to know I'll be here this business meeting week. I'm making the motion that we double all the staff and pastor salary so you better show up uh, b- because they're all coming with their family and their two friends okay and so you ought to be here I'm I'm so grateful God's delivered us from business meetings amen and uh, well it, it is good to be back with you one of the things that has happened in the good planning and stuff that your pastor and and them have done in sermon prep is when they ask you out of several weeks to preach you get a uh, an idea of what the text is going to be And I would admit uh, here a couple of months ago when I read this text, uh, I've been wrestling with it for these two months. I'm really glad to get this sermon done, okay, and finished because I'm going to be using a verse today in the start of this sermon that is probably the most misquoted, the most misunderstood verse in maybe all the Bible in fact, I think I could say it like this. You probably have some friends who don't know Christ or maybe spent just enough time in church to get just a little bit who have quoted this verse back to you in some discussion. And it usually goes like this. You'll be talking about some issue and they say, well, you know, Jesus said we're not supposed to judge other people. And they're using that in the context of the fact that as followers of Christ, we are really both supposed to be neutral about life and about issues. And they use this verse clearly out of context to be able to shut down any discussion of any moral issue today. And uh, it's found in Matthew chapter 7. It's uh, right here in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. It's very appropriate in the context of where you are as a church. uh, This sermon title is about learning to love other people. And it's in the context of the church asking you, which shouldn't be something they need to ask us to do, is that each month we're trying to build a relationship with one new person, befriend someone uh, that we would eventually hope to share the gospel, invite to church. And one of the things that you would know that if you and I move outside of the confines of this crowd, we're going to run into lots of people who disagree with us and look at life differently. And uh, one of the things they will try and get us to do is to be quiet about our beliefs. And Jesus is speaking uh, to a group of people uh, that were in control of their world. And they dominated their world religiously. And uh, they had created a religious system. Uh, that was like an albatross around them. It was like hanging something around their neck. And uh, Jesus talked about the yoke of it being around someone's neck. And it's in the context of that that he was speaking now primarily to the Jewish leaders. And he says, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there is a log in your eye? Oh, here's a a word that Jesus used back last week at our church. We were uh, going through a series of the life of Christ, and uh, our pastor preached on this word last week, and so my feet, toes have been stepped on like crazy. You hypocrite. Uh, It's a word he used to describe uh, the Jewish people of his day, and as you know, that's putting on a mask, giving an appearance about something. You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, here's a verse that may not seem to go with this text, but in reality, we're going to connect it. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your uh, pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. Now, as you look at this text, there's very first some questions that you ask. First of all, does this mean, that we are to live our lives in neutrality on the issues of our day? Does it mean that following Jesus Christ that we not only accept any lifestyle or belief, it also means that uh, any declaration of the truth of God, especially related to moral issues, can be considered hate speech, something that is uh, wanting to treat other people differently because of how they believe? Uh, Does it mean that those in our culture who would take a stand on an issue or make a declaration about something morally are people that should be labeled as narrow-minded and out of touch with the real world. Now, I want you to know that as you look around your neighborhood and your place and begin to uh, build relationships with people, you'll discover they don't mind you and me coming to church. They just want us to get out of their lives. More importantly, they want God out of their lives. So anytime we make declarations about God and about what God's word says and about what we believe about God's word, they're going to put us at arm's length. But we're going to talk this morning about how we do that in a world that disagrees with us and how we obey the scripture, which tells us to be discerning. It tells us to make judgments, but it tells us not to be judgmental. Well, to understand this text, you have got to jump into the context of what it was done. This was said specifically to the Jewish world. You've got to know in the history of the Jewish world, they were very, very good about making judgments. And you say, well, yes, they had the Torah, which was the first five books specifically called the law that they studied. But you need to know they were very good at expanding upon that, especially happened uh, hundreds of years earlier in the Babylonian captivity. And they began to put commentary with the law because they wanted to cover everything imaginable that could happen. And in doing so, they created a book today, and I was sitting on a plane recently next to a Jewish man, and he had out his Talmud. It's 2,700 pages of rules and declarations about life. They have in that Talmud 500 plus rules that you must live by. You think us Baptists have a lot of rules, okay? They had 500 rules that they had to live by, and they had to be very, very specific about very specific situations. They never wanted to leave anything for chance. Why? Because their standing before God was based upon their ability to perform, their ability to do everything right. And so they wanted the religious leaders to go through every single detail of their life and, and help them make decisions about what to do. Now you say, well, gosh, that, that must be terribly uh, dis- dis- disconcerting to the people. Well, you need to know we have done the same thing. Okay. If you go to the average uh, evangelical Baptist church today, you will find that there's many issues. We're all over the chart and it is kind of cultural. It is kind of how you grew up. It is kind of maybe the direction of the leadership of the church. I I discovered this, uh, in in really uh, clearly, uh, in an experience I had. Sandy and I grew up in Hot Springs, Arkansas. Go Razorbacks, okay? Pig Suey, and we're at least no longer the worst team in the SEC, okay? And uh, so uh, we love the Razorbacks. We grew up in Hot Springs. Any of you who know anything about Hot Springs knows that it has one of the most successful horse racing tracks in all of the country, Oaklawn Park. Uh, You drive right by it as you go down Central Avenue in Hot Springs. Well, in Hot Springs, gambling was something you absolutely could not do and go to church. Every church, every evangelical church, there was at least two or three sermons a year about the evils of gambling. But then on Friday night, on Friday night, uh, all the kids in the school would gather at the YMCA for the YMCA dance. And we would all gather there and dance, and parents would be there, and we'd have a great, great fun. And I always grew up believing, well, dancing's okay, but you know, gambling's not, certainly— Well, right out of seminary, we moved to L.A. How many of you have ever been to L.A.? Okay, that is Laverne, Oklahoma, okay? Uh, It's up there towards the panhandle. It was my very first pastorate, um, bulging metropolis of 1,200 people and has a big sign as you come into town, uh, Laverne, Oklahoma, home of Jane Giroux, Miss America, 1967. Okay, Janie Giroux. And so we went and moved to that church with farmers and ranchers and had horses and stuff. Well, we'd been there a couple of weeks and the Chairman Deacon said, hey, we're headed over to Rio Doso next week for the horse races. You and Sandy want to go. And I mean, at Hot Springs, you didn't even want to drive by. Okay. And I said, well, made some excuse. And they said, yeah, a whole bunch of us from the church are headed over to the horse races. And I said, great. And I said, but then I learned on Friday night, whenever the school would have a dance, no, 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 no. Okay. You, Baptists didn't dance, okay? We might shuffle our feet a little bit sometimes, or we might go to aerobics, we would call it, and move around. But you, you, you didn't dance. And I'm sitting there, I was standing there going, okay now, Lord, uh, if, if I want to gamble, I'm going to move to Laverne. If I want to dance, I move to Hot Springs, okay? Well, I know as silly as that sounds, and you probably have some d- convictions about those two issues, that's the kind of world that Jesus moved into where they wanted a declaration about everything. I recently read a book called Orthodox, about a girl growing up in an Orthodox family. One of the rabbis declared that on Sunday, you could not stroll your baby in a stroller, and they would go stand on the counter, corner and shout at people who'd be strolling their baby and claiming to be Jewish. That, this, that kind of world that, that they moved into, and it's that kind of world that they lived. And this word judge right here, You've got to realize it is a word that means to separate. It was the Jewish way of separating Jew and Gentile. That the Jew was righteous and the Gentile was unrighteous. And the Jew declared his righteousness by keeping all of these laws and all of these rules. And and they went to the greatest length to do that. Sandy and I saw that we take groups to Israel every year, and we've not been able to go the last two years. Are going this September with forty-five folks that'll be going with us, and we take groups there. And as you tour Israel, there's always the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, the world changes there. One of the things that changes is in the hotels. In the hotels, the Jewish families will come to the hotel and stay because the hotels usually have synagogues down in the basement. And they would spend their weekend there at the hotel. But one of the things that would happen is they would have two elevators and they would have a sign on one of the elevators. That was the Sabbath elevator. And I asked my guide, I said, what's a Sabbath elevator? And he said, well, it's against the rules for the Jew on the Sabbath to push the button. So if you get on that elevator, it will stop at every floor, okay? And they would do that so they would not have to work. It's that kind of extreme pronouncement about life that Jesus shared this text, and he shared with them, and he was not talking about what most people think he was talking about. He was looking at self-righteous people who felt their self-righteousness Their own performance lifted them above everyone else. And in your life, if you and I seek to go build relationships with people who are far from God and away from God, the very moment we move to self-righteousness, we have lost the battle and the opportunity for a relationship. So what I'm going to do here in this next hour and a half or two hours, okay? Uh, When you have a preacher who hasn't been up for three weeks, you've got to endure, okay? Uh, We're just going to unpack this. And I'm going to make four or five declarative statements about what I think this says and what it does not say. First thing, the first thing that must be established whenever you and I look at this issue is that you and I are not God when it comes to what is right and wrong. You and I are not God. I like a, a sign I saw on someone's desk that said, there is a God and it is not me, okay? And we've got to recognize that when we step out into this world and we are called upon to make judgments about issues and declarations about what is right and wrong and, and make decisions and make the choices and even vote in that kind of manner, we always need to do it under the context, we're not God. There is a God. Who knows what is right? There's only one who is righteous, and it is God himself. And we as God's people, as we live out in this world, should attack these issues based upon humility, with an understanding, and with an idea that any time we declare something, we are not moving to make someone else unrighteous. We are doing it as an opportunity to bring about redemption in someone's life and in our own life. And one of the ways we should always approach issues is with this attitude of humility, with an attitude that everything I say is motivated by love. Everything I say is motivated by the fact that I'm just like everyone else, trying to find truth from God's word about what God would have us to do. So the first thing you have to establish, God, your God, not me. The second thing is we need to recognize that when we make judgments about right and wrong, God has called us to do that, but he's also called us to live according to those judgments. That in other words, when the Bible speaks about issues, he uses a word that we need to understand, that we need to discern what is right and wrong. That word discern, that word discern is not an absolute judgment of, listen, you are unrighteous if you do this, and I'm righteous because I do that. But the word discern speaks of someone who is humble, who is seeking truth from God, who's trying to understand, is it dancing or is gambling? What is the issue? Is what I believe cultural? Is it because that's the way I was brought up? Or is it truly something based upon the word of God? Something we would respond to because God's word is spoken to us. And we have come to that conclusion, not out of our arrogance, not out of our self-sufficiency, not out of our self-righteousness, but out of the fact we have sought God and we have allowed his word, his inerrant word, to guide us in what truth would be. Now, let me just give you an example of what I'm talking about, okay? I'm going to pick a hot-button issue today that, that uh, is in the newspaper most every week. I'm going to take the issue of abortion. Now, you've got to know that in my life, we have an adopted son and an adopted grandson. I believe every life is a gift from God. I personally believe At the moment of conception, there's a life. I have a personal conviction about that issue, that at that moment, that life doesn't become the person birthing the child. It is knit together in the womb by God himself. Therefore, no one has control over that life except God. And so I want you to know, I I even made a commitment in my life 10 or 15 years ago that I would never vote for a candidate that was not pro-life. Oh, whatever they would believe about most every other issue, I decided the most important issue in life is who is in control of life. Therefore, I'm a pro-life person, and I'm going to live that way. But listen, that doesn't mean that I hate people who disagree with me. It does not mean that someone who has disagreed with me, and even live that out, that, that I'm going to hate that person or declare them evil or say, since you've done that, you're doomed to hell because you did this in that kind of manner. No, it's not that. It just means that in humility, I look at someone and say, I have a conviction. I have a conviction about this issue. By the way, I give you the freedom to have your own conviction. And I want you to know that I will allow you to do that. Now, I want you to also know When it comes to the laws of this land, I'm going to vote my conviction and I'm going to stand for candidates who represent my conviction. And I want you to know that you and I may go to the polling place and cancel each other's ballot, but I believe that we are a land of laws. I believe that every law that is made in society is based upon a moral conviction. We as a society used to believe that stealing was against the law. It was a moral thing that you didn't take something from someone else, but some people today have glorified going into stores and stealing because they've been mistreated in the past in some way. And so, what many people do, do today is want us to do away with laws. You need to know that's an anarchy. Then, that any time we, as a society, make decisions about what is right and wrong and create a law, what is it? It is a moral choice. And we are not to be people that are just kind of wet noodles about life. We are to be people that in reality make laws, make choices, and are willing to even punish those who make choices that are contrary to our laws. But in the, even in the middle of that, I want to read a little story to you this morning of something I got. Uh, our church at Fielder, uh, we support a ministry called Bridges to Life. It is a ministry done by Jim Buffington. It's all over in every prison in uh, the state of Texas is now moving out around the country. And they have a 14-step program to help people get ready to be able to get out of prison and how they can live beyond that and not be back. Did you know that 80% of all the people who go to prison once go back? But 80% of those who go through bridges to life do not come back. And one of the key components of it is that you take responsibility for what you did and not blame someone else and acknowledge you're wrong. Isn't that amazing that someone convicted of doing something know they would do it, would need to be convinced that they were wrong, but that's a big step for someone in prison. Well, Jim sent me this note the other day. He said, one of the most evil men on death row, and I'm sorry, I can't share his name, is viewed as the most dangerous inmate on death row And his own 24-hour observation is behind double-locked barricades, only accessible to open with the prison major's approval. He is on death row for killing a correctional officer by beating him to death with a tool and throwing his corpse down the stairs inside the prison. Well, one of our inmates, a field minister, by the way, Southwestern Seminary, has a program in the prisons for people who have come to know Christ to develop ministries there. They actually give degrees to those who are in prison to develop a ministry while they're there as an inmate. One of our ministers or one of our field ministers uh, who helps facilitate our program in this unit talked to the inmate, convincing him to come to Bridges to Life since he needed hope. Well, the man on death row accepted the challenge. When he got into our Bridges to Life chapter on forgiveness, week 10 of 14, the Lord saved him. He wrote a letter apologizing for his actions took full responsibility for the death of the officer, saying it was his own evil heart that concocted the plan to murder the officer. This man is continuing his study and as hungry as a starved lion is for his word, but he is now part of the kingdom of God. Well, you guys, that's what it means to make judgments about issues. No one is saying here, well, let's just let this guy out. No, he did something that in our society is punished. But even for a death row inmate, there is salvation and opportunity for redemption. And when you and I go about making declarations on issues, let's always realize, and we're going to see this in a moment, that it is not to be right on the issue. The reason why God leads us to make declarations is so we can be right and pure before God, but also so we can live a life that is acceptable to God. But then the third thing, let me make this statement. We make these decisions, these judgments in the context, now listen to this, of our own sin and rebellion against God and our need of the mercy of God. Now, here's one of the problems the Jewish man had. He did not want to admit that. It's the reason why he wanted to rule about everything. is so he could declare himself as Righteous. I have to encourage you sometime to read the book of Romans. Those entire 16 chapters are Paul trying to convince the Jewish man of one thing. You're a sinner in the need of the grace of God because you cannot save yourself. And anytime we face a world where we have to make judgments and we're building relationships, we do not come at it out of our own righteousness, out of our own arrogance, out of our own superiority, out of the fact that we are better than everyone else. We come about it out of humility, recognizing the gospel has changed us. And all we are here to do is to take that gospel to our world. Now think about the gospel for a minute. It's not talking about someone who earned their way to heaven, who someone who constantly attended church and knew the Bible from, uh, from cover to cover. It's not talking about someone who earned his way to heaven because they were better than where the culture was going. No, where does the gospel come from? Gospel comes out of the context we are sinners in need of a Savior. Let me say to you this morning, one thing that is certain about every one of us in this room is we are messed up people. And we are messed up people in need of a Savior. And if we would be honest with what God knows about us on a regular basis, we know it. that is why many people are condemning about others is because they know about their own sin and trying to lift themselves up. But the gospel is the heart of what we believe. And what we do is we go out of this place, not as people who know everything right, but we go out of this place as people who have been transformed. And we go into the neighborhood with an attitude of the gospel and recognizing that every one of us come at this from the grace of God and that we have been transformed by the grace of God. We cannot save ourselves. Therefore, when we walk out into this world, where the culture is so contrary to what we believe. We do not go out of this world with a fist. We do not go out of this saying, yeah, we're better than everyone else. We go out of this room understanding that we are people who need a savior and we need reconciliation. And all we're trying to do in building relationships with people is help them come to find that same reconciliation and that same salvation. I'm afraid very often, we've been very good at painting ourselves better than everyone else. When in reality, we know that's not true. I like what Chuck Colson said about this years ago after he'd come to know Jesus out of a life where he went to prison and came to know Christ, wrote the book Born Again. Someone asked Colson one day, say, hey, you don't believe all that stuff about, we're sinners, do you? We're sinners in need of a savior. Chuck Colson responded to that person and said, well, let me tell you how much I believe it. He said, if the truth was known today, You and I are more like Adolf Hitler than we are Jesus Christ. What is that just acknowledging? It's acknowledging our own sin, our own unrighteousness, and our own need of Christ. And when we go out and make judgments when we build these relationships. We do it out of the context. We're a sinner saved by grace and we want you to find that same grace. So what we do, we do it out of the context of the gospel. The fourth statement. Listen to this one. And this is the one that ought to shock us the most. We become like what we give. You see, Gary, what do you mean we become like what we give? Well, let me say if you and I become people who are arrogant, self righteous, better than others, guess who it's going to impact more than anyone us? That's why in this text, he says, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, what was he saying? As you look at that, you, you, you want to wrestle with this. What is he talking about? I think what he's saying to us is our view of God impacts who we are and it impacts how we treat other people. If we believe our God is a God that that looks down and and, and, uh, pats us on the back when we're so much better than everyone else and makes us think we're better than other people who are around us, that's the kind of life that we will portray. But if our view of God is a God of mercy, a God of grace, we recognize that our view of God, that he was gracious to love us and to bring us into a relationship with him. When we begin to understand that, guess what we'll begin to do? We will give away the same grace that has been given to us. You see, that's a principle that runs all the way through scripture. Do you, do you remember a verse out of Luke that we oftentimes quote, give and it shall be given unto you? How many times have you heard a preacher preach on that text, okay? He always does it right before the offering, okay? And you give and it's gonna be given to you. By the way, that text has very little to do with money. When you study the context, it's about giving away love. As you give away love, love will come back to you. What? Press down, running over, overflowing. You won't be able to contain it. We want to say it's about money. We all go, oh, ho, ho, that's how to fill my bank account. No, it's telling us. If we want to experience love, if we want to learn how to receive love, if we want to be uh, overflowing with love in our lives that we cannot contain it, let's give it away. And in giving away, it will come back to us. Same thing about grace. Now, Certainly, this grace and mercy is not given away in the context of saying there's not right and wrong. Making discerning judgments about that. Acting upon those judgments. But even in that, we do it with grace and mercy. It's the same way with the issue of forgiveness. One of the most shocking statements Jesus made was he said, "Forgive." And if you won't forgive, I won't forgive you. Have you ever wrestled with that text? You mean say, if there's someone I won't forgive, I I, I will not get the forgiveness of God. No, no, I don't think it's saying that. What I think it's saying to us is as we give away forgiveness, we experience forgiveness. And we experience the love and forgiveness of God in our life, not as we achieve it, but as we give it away. And so let me say to you and me today is we will become just like what we give to other people. If we give self-righteousness, if we give an arrogance, if we give I know what's right and wrong about everything and you need to submit to this, we're going to get that right back on ourselves in life. If we learn in the middle of making judgments, how to love people, how to forgive people, how to give grace to people, we'll be shocked at how that grace and mercy comes back to us. We, we have someone who's a family, friends of ours, who has a daughter that we have watched grow up. And as we watched her grow up, she, in her teenage years, became very cynical, very negative about life, very negative about people. It didn't have many friends because very often she was someone who was constantly nipping at other people and wondered why she didn't have friends. As you could look at her, you kind of didn't even want to be around her because of that attitude. Well, here a couple of years ago, God did something in her life. And God got her attention. She graciously surrendered her life to the Lord and seeking to do his will and living her life now in his word. And the other day we were with that family and, She looked at us and said, you know something? I realized I was becoming mean and I was giving away meanness and it was affecting my heart. She said, I've learned to look at it differently and I saw not a meanness but a sweetness in that young lady. Well, if you and I want to go out into our world and build relationships, we're not going to do it by being right. We're going to do it by learning to give away what God has freely given to us, which is grace and love and mercy. So, if you want to become like Jesus, let's start living like Jesus in the lives of other people. Last thing, I'll conclude, okay? And that is the fact that in every relationship, listen to this, we should seek to redeem them, not to demean them. We should seek redemption. In this text... The, the, the play right here. Why do you go and your brother has a speck and you won't remove the log? And you could think and first, he's just trying to talk about the log in their eye. But later on, he begins to talk about the fact that as we build relationships, there's gonna be a moment, there's gonna be a relationship that God calls us to go to that person. And we see something in their lives that's being destructive. And out of love and redemption, we want to help them. Not to show them we're right and they're wrong, Not to prove ourselves better than them, but in mercy and in grace out of the life in the gospel. We go see somebody who has a speck in their eye, but we start with removing the log out of our eye, which is the vastness of our sin, so that God may be able to use us, use us to help them be redeemed from the life that they're living. And redeemed from a lifestyle that's taking them the wrong way. Now, he says in verse number six that sometimes you'll discover the person's not going to receive it. And you realize you've just cast your pearls before swine. And you back away. But sometimes, sometimes it describes it like this in Romans that let us pursue what makes peace for the mutual upbuilding. Another place, we love our neighbor to build them up. That when we go to someone in humility, We're not going to them out of the fact they're wrong and we're right. We're going to them out of the fact that, you know something? I'm a sinner saved by grace, and I see this in your life. And out of love, I want to tell you, I think this is leading you in the wrong direction. And I want to ask you to pray about this before God. Sandy and I had an experience like that recently, Keith, and our small group. My wife and I... As pastor, we're part of a small group. Everybody should be in a small group. See Keith after church right now, okay? Every person that signs up, I get a dollar and a half, okay? So see Keith, all right? But we're part of a group, and uh, they're really our church family, Keith. There's 27 folks. We're too big. We should be smaller. Mike and Esther Farhat lead it, and they're wonderful, and they're great. But we had a person in our group that one night in a discussion, It was a discussion about a sensitive topic. It was a discussion about the Holy Spirit, more specifically the gifts. And I knew in our group that we had five or six people who had grown up in the Assembly of God movement, Pentecostal movement, and speaking in tongues was part of their private life and knew that was a very vital part of their life. Well, one of the guys in our group who knew that as well basically insulted any person in the group who disagreed with him on that issue. Basically, Uh, uh, when when he said what he said, we all just kind of go, oh, whoa, whoa. Well, the leader of our small group, Mike Farhat, went to see this brother. And uh, at first, this brother said, well, okay, I'll just quit. Well, his wife and mother-in-law who's in the group said, no, you're not quitting. We're going whether you go or not, all right? Well, after praying about it a couple of weeks, he got up in front of our group and apologized. Acknowledged to the group. What I said was not kind, not sensitive. He said, I just, I, whatever I'd agree on this issue, it's not right to be disagreeable. Do you know something that happened, Keith? It's since he's done that, there's been a new work of God in our group out of his humility, out of Mike's humility, out of the group's forgiveness and humility. All I know is, is God likes it that we become discerning about issues. And let's be willing to live in accordance with what God's done in our life. But Jesus would be saying right here, do it in humility. Do it with grace. Do it with an understanding that we're not God. That what we concern most about in that person's life is not us being right, but them Being right with God. Bow your head with me, please, for just a moment, would you? Now, this morning, as we have attacked this issue, could it be possible today that God's put his hand on a place, a place where you have found yourself being judgmental, separating from others, because you thought you were better. You were right and they were wrong. Could this be the very person God is wanting you to learn how to give away love, grace, kindness, forgiveness. Giving away love, kindness, and forgiveness in a way that seeks to redeem. Seeks God's glory in that relationship. There may even be a person you would need to go to and say, you know, in my zeal for this, I wasn't kind. I wasn't gracious. Maybe it's your humility that God's going to use to show that person Jesus more than You showing them Jesus by being right on an issue. But then right now, would you think clearly about building relationships with people far from God? That it is going to require grace and mercy and kindness. Even as you discern the issues. Would you ask the Lord to show you that person in your neighborhood? It could be the person you get along with the least at work, in your family. But God would do it more to shape you in the beginning than them. Father, take this message today and help us to learn how to live for your glory. God, if there's any place that I would misapply this, you just take it away. But Lord, where there is truth, speak truth to us for your glory in Jesus' name, I pray.